We are in the book of the Judges. This is part 16 of our journey through the book of the Judges. All of these sermons you can listen to online, subscribe via Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, they're all there. But what you need to know is Israel, in the book of the Judges, they're constantly getting into trouble. They're constantly becoming more like the people around them who, oh, by the way, they were supposed to drive out from the land. They didn't do that. And as a result, they become like those people. They turn their back on God. And we have this constant cycle when they rebel and sin against God. God raises up foreign nations to oppress them. They cry out to help. God hears their cry. He sends them a deliverer or a judge. They come to their aid and then they're delivered and things are good for a little while and then they fall once again back into sin. This is the pattern throughout this entire story. <coughs> As we saw in the previous two sermons, the man Gideon, he has a bunch of kids. He has 70 sons and one of those sons, Abimelech, is from a a relationship with a woman that he had no business getting involved with. She was a non-Israelite woman. She was a Shechemite. And this son, Abimelech, decides that he wants to be the big man. He wants to be the man. And so he reaches out to his family members on his mom's side, these Shechemites. And he proposes an idea. He says, which would be better? If one person ruled over you, or 70, because i got 70 brothers and sisters. And then he says, furthermore, wouldn't it be better if you had a relative versus, you know, these other people? Because I'm, you know, part Shechemite, my mom's Shechemite. So the Shechemites give him the money that he's seeking in order to hire a gang of thugs to have all of his brothers killed. He kills all 70 of his brothers, except one, the youngest brother, Jotham. He escapes and we learned about Jotham's fable in chapter 9 of the book of Judges. And in Jotham's fable, he tells a story where the trees come and they approach these other trees and they say, will you reign and rule over us? They approach the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, and all three wonderful trees, wonderful plants, they say no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks because we're too busy being productive and serving and pouring into and helping others. We don't have time to be the ruler. And then the trees approach the bramble bush, the thorn bush. And the thorn bush, which ironically has nothing positive that it can contribute whatsoever, it's just a thorn bush, it says, absolutely I'd love to be king and rule over everybody else. And of course, that's very much the picture of this man, Abimelech, right? He doesn't care who he has to step over. He kills 70 of his brothers in order to get what he really, really wants. And at the end of Jotham's fable, Jotham pronounces a curse. He says, may Jotham, in his curse, he says, may Abimelech and the people of Shechem, may they ultimately just kill each other. And that's what happens. That's what happens. And, and then we come to chapter 10. And it says this. Chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shammer in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. And then he died and was buried at Shammer. 
Here, this man, Tola, is introduced. His name means worm. Tola, whose name means worm. He is one of these secondary deliverers or judges who are more obscure. Not a lot we know about him, just a few verses. But what's curious, I think about Tola, is that the nation was in need of deliverance after the death of Abimelech. Abimelech's a pretty bad dude. And one would think, well, Abimelech's dead. We should be okay. Things should be good. But it's not. That's pretty amazing. Abimelech only ruled for three years. That's it. But what it illustrates is that it does not take a lot of time to do a whole lot of damage. This bad dude, Abimelech, was only in charge for three years. He ruled over Israel or part of Israel. That's it. And I think the fact that they need a deliverer, that they need Tola after he dies, illustrates that. Doesn't take a whole lot of time to do a whole lot of damage. Kind of like the old saying is, it takes a long time to build trust. It takes moments to just destroy it. It doesn't take a, a lot to do a whole lot of damage. And it really, I think, reflects furthermore just the seriousness and the chaos that was produced by Abimelech during his three-year reign. He was a bad, bad dude. But Tola comes, and he is their deliverer for 23 years. Then after him, according to verse 3 of chapter 10, arose Yair, Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath, Jair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. Tola, his name meant worm, the next deliverer of Israel, the next judge, Jair, his name means may God enlighten. A little bit of a step up from worm, I, I suppose. And what we see here in this picture is this guy, he's the deliverer for Israel, and he's got 30 sons, they're on their 30 donkeys, they've got their 30 cities. And, and while it's somewhat uncertain why the narrator feels the need to insert this, most likely he's inserting this to convey a picture of peace and prosperity. In contrast to the insecurity, in contrast to the danger that characterized during most of this book, during most of this story, here, during the days of Jair, things were much, much better. A lot different than the turbulent times that we discussed previously throughout the prior nine chapters. But the thing about good times is in good times, it's, I think, it's difficult to follow the Lord. Because in good times, you have a tendency to forget and need less the Lord. In those good times, you don't, you don't need as much help because things are good. If they weren't good, well, then you would need help. And that's, I think, the, the challenge. I think whether it's for Israel or for us, to be on guard. I think some of the most dangerous times are when things are going good. How was your week? I had a good week. All right, well, keep your guard up. Keep your head up. Because during those times, I think we're really prone to coming under attack. We don't need as much help. And we also have a tendency to forget. Forget our need. 
those times when we really need the Lord's help. It's not that we really need the Lord's help in those moments and we don't in the other moments. It's that those moments, those moments just make it a little bit more clear what is always universally true, that we need God. Well, Jair rules. He's the Gileadite. Once again, his name means may God enlightened. And during his time that he ruled, it seems there was, there was a peace, there was prosperity. And then he dies. And then we come to verse 6. And this cycle begins to repeat itself. The people of Israel again, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they, keyword, forsook the Lord and did not serve him. If I could capture verse 6, if I could capture maybe this entire chapter in three words, total spiritual corruption. For those of you who are taking notes, don't miss that. Verse 6 serves to highlight this. Total spiritual corruption on the part of the people of God. You know, oftentimes in Israel, their relationship is one in which it's they try to syncretize things, right? They, they try to have one hand holding the Lord's hand, and they're trying to follow Yahweh as best as they could, but what ends up happening, right, as they're holding God's hand, they're, they're following God as best they can, and they're like, oh, oh, I, I like that. I'm going to grab your hand, Kramer, right now. And then it's like, all right, and this is what we want to do, right? I want to I kind of have my cake and eat it too. I want to hold on to God's hand, but I also want to hold on to the hands of Baal and the Ashroth and these, these sins, right? Because, man, they look really attractive. And bottom line, what this is, is just unbelief. You say, it's unbelief? It's not, how is that unbelief? Why do you use that word unbelief? Because in that moment, in that moment where they're holding on to God's hand and they're, they're looking, right? They're like, oh, that looks good over there. I'll take that. And they try to do this. There's this element where God is not totally satisfying. God is not totally beautiful. God is not totally glorious. God is not enough. So I got I to gotta have this over here, right? Whatever this is, right? I got to have the Baal, the Ashroth. I got to have the sexual immorality. I want to I do both. And, and for many, I think, of us today, that's the challenge that we have. We're, we're holding on to the Lord's hand, and we're trying to follow the Lord as, as best we can, and we're struggling, and, and then all around us, right, the world is saying, find your happiness, find your joy, find your satisfaction in something else. Why well, have something else to offer you? And then we reach out to those things. And like the people of Israel throughout the story... They try to reconcile this. Well, it's okay, right? It's okay if I'm holding on to this other thing. I'm still worshiping the Lord. And yeah, then you're going out and worshiping like the Baal and the Ashtoreth. And that's why I use the word syncretism, right? They're, they're trying to almost blend it. And that's very much their struggle throughout this time period. But I use three words to describe verse 6, and that was total spiritual corruption. Because if you look, you see the word forsook. And they 
or sook, or the word is abandoned. You could also say they no longer served. At this point in Israelite history, they're holding on to the Lord's hand. They're holding on to the Lord's hand. They're trying the best, right, to follow him. And then at this point they say, no, I'm done. Like, I'm not even going to, like, fake it till I make it. I'm just whatever. That's, that's what they're doing here. That's why I use that phrase, total spiritual corruption. Like, we're not even going to pretend, like, to follow the Lord at this point, right? Because a lot of the times they're holding on to, to the idols and the sins in their life and the Lord's hand, but they're like, whatever. Like, at this point, they're like, that's how egregious this is. And that's why I use the word unbelief. There's an element of unbelief that leads to them forsaking the Lord, just turning their back on the Lord. While it might not seem that way, that's what's happening. There is some element where they are no longer believing that Yahweh, that the Lord, He is totally beautiful, He is totally satisfying, He is totally glorious, that He's enough. He's not enough. That's why they're turning their back. Any element of sin include and may include idolatry and unbelief. In those moments we sin, we stop believing. We stop believing things we know are true. And we think, well, maybe that's not true. I just really want this other thing. Is God not satisfying enough to you that you have to have this other thing? Is he not? Pretty offensive when you think about it. That's pretty offensive. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is verse 7. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year for 18 years. They oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and the land of the Amorites which is in Gilead, and the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Verse 7 again. Let's go back to verse 7. God is angry. Understandably so, especially if my little hashtag, my total spiritual corruption is is accurate here, uh, representative of verse 6 really, as well as this whole story. It's understandable God's angry. And I think sometimes we forget about that. We, we, we want to focus on maybe the love of God or the grace of God, all of which are wonderful and true and just beautiful things. But we also forget that he gets angry sometimes with, with his children. He gets angry with them. And um, it says he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. This is not a matter of coincidence in which it's Oh, well, they're misbehaving, and here come the Philistines and the Ammonites at just this precise time. Like, it's not coincidence. This is God using these other nations, sending these other nations to come and put a whooping on their behinds. That's, that's what's happening here. He is selling them, right? Not that he's getting money in the bank account or something, but rather he is the one actively disciplining them, which... Ultimately, I think we'll see, is a loving thing, right? It's a loving thing. 
takes me back to my childhood, right? And some of you, you have PTSD from this, right? Little Joey, this is going to hurt me. A lot more of this is going to hurt you. Please, no, not again, right? So that's, there's that element, right? In that moment, it doesn't, doesn't, that discipline seems unpleasant. That's Hebrews 12, right? Discipline seems unpleasant. But we know that later on, that discipline has a really good return. It yields a fruitful crop for those who have been trained by it. Paraphrase, like Hebrews 12, 16, something like that. Um, he's angry. He's angry. And things are not going well now for Israel. Uh, they are, as verse 9 says, severely distressed. They are severely distressed. And you can imagine, if you're severely distressed... You're not going to like that. I don't think there's any person I've ever met who says, I love being severely distressed. Sign me up for that. Like, we don't like being severely distressed. And you get a paddling, you don't like that. Nobody does. And so they do what you probably expect them to do. They cry out to God. Verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying... We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Stop. They're severely distressed and they cry out to God. Now we've seen, listen to the previous, if you've heard the previous 16 sermons, this has happened on many occasions. They get severely distressed because they're in trouble. God sends a foreign nation and they cry out to God. But every time they've cried out to God, it's, that's just what it is. They're crying out to God. They just want it to stop. They don't, they don't like it. It feels uncomfortable. This is very unique because for the first time and the only time in this book, the narrator expands upon this idea of them crying out to God. It is the first time in this book that there is a confession of sin that is heard from the Israelites. It's not just, I'm crying out to God for help, because anyone's going to do that. But notice the confession of sin. We have sinned against you. Name it specifically, because we've forsaken, we, we pieced out, we turned our back on you, and we served the Baals, we served other gods. Very interesting. And some of us, if, if you've been with us through this 16-week journey through the book of the Judges, we're maybe a little skeptical, like, that's nice. However, what is the condition of their heart right now? Like, is this legit? Some of you have been, you've been here through this study of Judges. You're like, all right, that's cool, but is, is this actually legit? First time we've seen it. Maybe we're optimistic. Maybe we're also a little skeptical. And that's certainly understandable. So what is the, the condition of their heart? Well, more on that in a second. We'll look at their heart in a second. But I can't help but spend a little time hovering over this issue of them confessing their sin. We'll get to the, the, the heart issue in a second, whether it's legit or not. But, but what I want to look at right now is the fact that they are doing a good thing. It's a good thing when we confess our sins. It's a good thing to seek regular forgiveness from God. I think what's interesting to me is some people, they don't feel the need to do that. 
Some people don't feel the need to do that. I, I remember hearing a, I don't know, a soundbite probably two years ago, and you know the president had made a comment where he didn't think he needed God's forgiveness, and I'm not here to make any type of judgments, but that's a very provocative statement, you know, to say, I don't need God's forgiveness. And I think when we tell people about the hope that we have in Christ, when we share with people the good news of Jesus, when we share with them the gospel that Jesus came, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man, lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial death on the cross, is buried, and then three days later rises from the grave, and that salvation's a free gift of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, the response I normally hear is, well, that's, that's nice, but I'm a good person. In other words, like, I don't need that, but my next-door neighbor, man, they need that. You go tell them that, right? Because this mindset for a lot of people is, I'm good. I'm good, so I don't, I don't need to confess my sins. I don't need forgiveness. That's what amazes me. But 1 John 1.8 is very clear on this. And I'm going to slightly, I want to I spend some time on Israel and them confessing their sins right now. We'll get to whether it's a hard issue or not in a second, but it's a good thing. I think it's a good model for us. But a lot of people think, oh, I don't need to do that. First John 1 John 1.8 would say, uh, for those that think you don't need forgiveness, for those of you who think you don't need to confess your sins, you're lying to yourself. That's a paraphrase, because you can see the verse right there. But that's what John the Elder would say. You're lying to yourself if you don't think you need forgiveness. In fact, not only are you lying to yourself, but he would go on in 1 John 1.10... And he would say, you also are calling God a liar. Not only are you deceiving yourself, but you're actually telling the king of the universe that he's a liar. We make him a liar. And, and so there's this element when it comes to confessing our sins and seeing Israel right here. Maybe, maybe broken, maybe, we don't know, yet. This element where this is a really good thing that they are doing. James 5.16, I think is this picture of this horizontal confession. Confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another. This is something that we should do. This is something we should do. When it comes to confession of sins, there is a a horizontal and vertical aspect of this. In this story, we see the vertical aspect, but obviously there's other applications such as that, that horizontal aspect. You know, so I... In my carnality, in my flesh, I'm say something I shouldn't say or do something I shouldn't do. To Diana, I'm mean, I'm rude, I'm short with her. It's been known to happen. What do I do? I go, I confess my sin to her. Or sometimes I'm sometimes I'm totally unaware and she comes and she says, Do you know that when you did X, Y, and Z that really hurt my feelings? I'm getting a little little farther off from this text, but I love that Matthew 18, right? I love Matthew 18, and sometimes she comes and she says, she helps me. She helps me, because I'm just like not aware. I'm totally oblivious. Some of you guys understand what that's like. And she, she helps me bring me to that James 5.16 point. And sometimes the confession of sin, it's not simply because I've wronged someone. Sometimes it's because I need... I need a brother in the faith, or I need a sister in the faith, ladies, 
to come and pray for me because I've sinned. I, I have just been gossiping this whole week or I have fallen into sexual immorality and I need to confess that to my brother. I need them to pray for me. I need them to pray for me. It's not always just an element where, where I've sinned against someone. Sometimes it's an element where the, it might not even have to do with them, but I need that type of support in that moment. And then, of course, contextually, what fits into this story is it's that vertical, right? It's that 1 John 1, 9, where I'm just bringing it to God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which contextually, that's what's happening here. They're not confessing one to another as much as they are confessing to God. And this verse is a verse I'm sure some of you are familiar with. And I've always looked at this verse in terms of God's faithful. He's faithful. You can come, you can confess, and, and you're forgiven, right? I was listening to a well-known pastor. His name is John Piper. And it was probably a couple months ago. And he showed me something I hadn't seen before. I always look at the faithfulness part, but also that word, and just. I never really spent a lot of time looking at the fact that God's also a just God. Why? Well, you know how it is. We, I think we certainly like to maybe focus on certain attributes of God. He's loving, He's good, He's kind, and those are so beautiful. But He's also, as we saw in the story, He can get angry. And oh, by the way, He's also a just God. And the just God, He's got to punish sin. If He doesn't punish sin, He's not just. Now we got a problem. And the beauty, I think, of 1 John 1, 9 is, yes, he is faithful, but he's also just. How is he just? He is just in that he totally credits the worth of what his son did on the cross as payment, as enough. You're able to do this, yes, because he's faithful, but you're also able to do this because he's just. Because his justice was totally paid for. It was divvied out when his son died on the cross. It was enough. And that's good news. Yes, we should confess our sins. There's certainly, I think, horizontal applications, but there certainly is that vertical application. That's the beauty. Yes, he's faithful, but he is totally just. That all the blood of our Savior, it went to pay a debt. It went to pay the debt so that we could say, yes, justice was served. And so the people here, they come. And it's interesting because, as we said, first time in the story where the narrator develops this idea, they cry out to God, but then they confess. But we're wondering, is this actually legit? Is it genuine? Well, here's what the text tells us. Here's God's response. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Verse 11, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? From the Ammonites and from the Philistines? Did, did I not did I do that? That's right, I did do that, didn't I? Yeah, I did. The, oh, by the way, the Sidonians also, verse 12, and the Amalekites and the Mayanites. They all oppressed you, and you cried out to me. Do, do you remember that? You guys were crying your eyes out like a little baby. Remember that? And what did I do? I saved you. Every time, every time I saved you, you needed me, I was there. Yet, verse 13, yet you have forsaken me. You've abandoned me. Like you're not even trying to fake it till you make it. You've just peaced out. 
and you have served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Not happening today. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 14, Go and cry out to the other gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Every time in the past, you cried out to me. Every time in the past, you needed me. Every time in the past, I was there for you. I bailed you out time and time again. It's not happening today. No. And this would be an appropriate time for a hashtag, tough love. It really would. In fact, he goes on to say, those other gods that you've whored after, go ask them for help. Go ask them for help. Was their cry, was their confession of sin genuine and legit? Doesn't seem so. In fact, here, Yahweh, in response to them, he scolds the nation for this ungrateful response in the past. He reminds them how he's always rescued them when they've cried out. But because of their persistent unfaithfulness and infidelity, yeah, none happened in this time. God recognizes, he exposes the purely manipulative nature of their cry. The people, they have used him. They've used him repeatedly, simply just to get out of the difficult circumstances. In the past, yeah, he's, he's responded to their pleas, but it's not happening. Their confession, it sounds like true repentance, or even maybe hopeful. But God sees past these pious words to the real nature of their heart. And he says, no, I'm not bailing you out this time. Ministry uh, is a hard thing. My mom, she called me last month and she was saying how her and her friend, they've been trying to help this single mom with a daughter for like two years and finally the mom just peaced out and my mom's friend as she was relating the story to me was like I'm just so hurt I feel so used we've been trying to help this woman for two years I just feel like we're just tossed aside because she didn't she didn't like what she heard from us and, and she's done with us and you know obviously I thought about that and I'm like bottom line if, if you're going to do ministry which if you're a follower of Jesus in some way or shape, you should be doing ministry, ministering to the needs of the world around us who are looking for hope, and it can only be found in Jesus, okay? Bottom line, you should be doing ministry. Oh, by the way, if you do ministry, you're going to get hurt. You are. You're going to get disappointed. People ask me, what's your favorite thing about being a pastor? I say, the people. They say, what's your least favorite thing? And I say, the people, Right? Why? Because people are people. Like, they, 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 they bite the hand that, that feeds them oftentimes. I, I remember a girl serving on the worship team. It was like five, six years ago. And uh, I don't know what happened. She was upset. I don't, somebody hurt her feelings. I don't know all the details. Not important. So she pieces out. She doesn't call. She doesn't write. It's been like three months. Haven't heard from her at all. And then one Sunday before the service, she got here early. I'm like, whoa, there's so-and-so. I haven't seen her in three months since she peaced out. I can tell she's upset. Can I talk to you? I'm like, sure, you can talk to me. So we go and talk. And I don't even remember what the issue was. But I remember asking her. I said, you know, I, and I, I was trying to counsel her, help her uh, understand the situation. I said, you know, I, 
I'm just wondering, why are you talking to, to me? What, you know, I know, you know, by your own, you know, you've said you've been going to this other church for the last three months, but, but why did you decide to come to talk to me today? You know, and uh, I was just, I thought that was interesting. And I remember another story, very similar. There's a couple who came to Lynchburg City Church kind of off and on for maybe a year, <clears throat> never really involved. I didn't really know them very well. And then they stopped coming. I didn't hear from them for like six or nine months. Then they reached out to me and they said, hey, Joe, we were wondering if you could, you know, officiate our, our wedding. And I was like, well, well I'm, I'm honored. And I said, but I said, you know, I, I haven't seen you guys for about nine, the last nine months. Oh, we've been going to this other church. I said, okay. Well, I said, and I said so kindly, as kindly as I could, I said, I am honestly truly honored that you would even think of me, but I said, I'm not sure how well I can counsel you guys in premarital counseling um, because I, I, I don't know you. I, I haven't really been around in your life for the last nine months. And I said, you know, I think it would be the most beneficial for you to maybe reach out to the pastor of the church that you've been going to. At least they, they said they were going to another church. I don't know. And um, within a few days, I had two less friends on Facebook. Uh, but, but it was coming ultimately because I I wanted, I wanted to help them, and I wanted what was best for them. And some of you, you, you know what that's like. Some of you, you've got people in your life, and they like you as long as you're telling them what they want to hear, and they like you as long as you're doing what they want you to do. But the second that you tell them, no, I'm not going to help you, you really see you really see the nature of your relationship with him. There was a young man, he came to me, he, he was involved in another local church, but he, he wanted to come for counseling, and I, I met with him, I, I, I meet with anybody, okay? Meet with anybody, and we talked, and he wanted to meet on a regular basis, and he said, I want to get involved with Lynchburg City Church, and I said, that's, that's wonderful, that's great. Um, I, but what was interesting is, after about six or seven weeks, he kept meeting with me, and then I realized, like, I'd never actually seen him a Sunday here, a small group, and I was thinking, you know, you said this, but what's going on? I said, I, I, I want to help you. I absolutely want to help you. But if we're going to be meeting regularly, I cannot help you nearly as much as the pastors of your local church. Furthermore, they're the ones that have to give an account to God for you. Okay, If you're, if you're a member there, or you're involved there. Besides, I, I'm going to be limited in being able to help you because I don't see you on a regular basis. I don't see how you interact with people. I don't know what's going on with you. They would be much better positioned to help you. Does that make sense? And he was like, no, I, I understand that. Then I had one less friend on Facebook. But that's the nature, I think, when you're doing ministry. Um, it can get messy. But sometimes the very best thing you can do is point out some of these things. Um, especially if people are using you. And that's the issue in this story. God's like, listen, I've been there, X, Y, and Z. Every time I've been there. This time, no. It's tough love. Sometimes it's hard to do it. And for me, like, all three of those conversations, I just paraphrase for you. I, like, I didn't even want to say those things or ask those awkward questions, but I knew that ultimately those were probably, like, long-term, those were probably the best questions I could ask or rather point out to these people. That was the best thing for them. And here in this story, we see the people need God. Of course they need God. God tells them no. Like, but, but they need God. They need help right now. And sometimes the best thing 
best thing for people like the Israelites here who are just just coming only to fix their problems because really there's really just using God in this story is to tell them no. Sometimes that's the most beneficial, healthiest thing. As we can see, look at the very next verse. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Stop. Back to 15. God says, I'm not going to help you today. Not this time. And this is where Israel has to have a real, you might say, a come to Jesus moment. Okay? And notice, notice what happens as a result of God telling them no. It's hard, but notice what happens. It forces them to take ownership and responsibility and say, once again, we messed up. We were wrong. And you know what? You do whatever you think needs to be done. You see Israel, just just the maturity as a result of God, just this tough love telling them no. You see the maturity, and they're forced to come to terms and accept responsibility for what they've done. And they just say, do whatever you think needs to be done. Oh, by the way, putting away the other gods. Oh, by the way, serving Yahweh. At this point, the, the people of Israel demonstrate with their actions, with their actions, what their lips have confessed earlier. And that's where at some point, some point, people can talk a good game. It's like, what are you going to do? Are you actually going to follow through on this advice? Are are you going to actually do the right thing? I know, you're confessing, you're talking a good game, but your actions haven't followed through with this up to now. And sometimes... Sometimes we struggle with this, but we actually enable people just to continue on the path that they're on. And they just suck and suck and suck and use and use and use. And sometimes, sometimes the best thing we can do, like Yahweh here, is say, I can't, I'm sorry, I I can't keep being the person you need me to be. Because ultimately, only God can be that person for you. And this is where... God is angry. This is where God is just. But yet, this is also the most loving thing for him to do for the people is tell them no. Because it forces them to come to terms, to grow, to really just man up and now demonstrate with their actions what their lips had already confessed. Verse 16, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. And then it says at the end of verse 16, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is, I'm not going to lie, 16b is a challenging verse. Scholars are not in agreement with this last statement, which really, I think, deals with the issue of the sincerity on the part of the people. If you said, Joe, are they being sincere or are they not being sincere? If I, if I was forced to make a decision, I'd say, I think they're being sincere. I think the context here, I think the natural reading of the text... I think they're probably being sincere and we should understand verse 16b as a statement of empathy where God is, he is frustrated, he is concerned because Israel is still being treated and trampled upon as a result and consequences of their earlier actions. 
But the challenge, you say, well, then what's the problem with that? Why would anyone doubt the sincerity of Israel's heart? The, the problem is this, and here's the weakness, okay, of, of my, my point of view, is if they were totally being sincere and legit, one, why is there no promise of deliverance to negate the statement in verse 13? You think if they were being legit, then there'd be a, a promise that negates the verse 13 statement. Second, why is God silent after verse 16a? Third, why is the next deliverer, Jephthah, never described as having been raised up or strengthened by Yahweh? Furthermore, why is God totally absent in the account of the rise of the next deliverer, Jephthah, to leadership in Israel? And so that's why the 16b statement, some people think Israel's sincerity, even after verse 15 and 16, still wasn't legit. But regardless of that, we have another problem that comes up. And the problem is this. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, verse 17, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, they said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Who is he? We've got to find him. He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Got to find somebody, and so this is what we'll do. Put a posting, right? Jobs wanted, and uh, anyone who will be that guy for us, we'll let him essentially be our ruler. You say, why is that concerning? You say, what, what's concerning, what's alarming, is in light of what we may perceive, at least. As a, as a genuine repentance on the part of the people, is we see the leaders of Gilead call for a volunteer. And then in almost this way, I'm going to dangle this carrot in front of him to coax him in to stepping into this role over the entire region. Someone says, what's the problem with that? You're, you're looking for somebody? You know, you're, you're going to offer them to be the leader? What's the problem with, with dangling that in front of them? And problem is this approach to leadership rarely ends well because it's rather the sort of leaders that you end up recruiting tend to be more focused on themselves and that prize than in actually caring about or serving the people and, and we we know a, a very recent story chapter 9 of Emelech Jotham's fable and of course Jotham compares Abimelech to the thorn bush Thornbush has absolutely nothing positive to contribute, but he wants to be the man. See, that's the, the problem here. That's what's alarming here. And, and this happens all the time. It happens in 2019. It does. It even happens in the church. Yep. It's a lot easier to find people who want to be in leadership it's a lot easier to find volunteers who want to be in publicly seen positions. It's a lot easier to find those people than the people who, you know, put away the trash and you don't even know that they're putting away the trash. There's a, there's a, there's a real heart issue here. There's a real problem there. Because at first glance, you might think, there's nothing wrong. They're just looking for someone to be their leader. And they're just, you know, they're offering him, you know, that he can kind of rule over them. Well, that, that tends to recruit the, the wrong type of people. That tends to recruit the Abimelech type people. Jotham's fable, right? 
That's what it tends to do. And, and oh, by the way, verse 17 and 18 was even more problematic. It leaves no hint of spiritual sensitivity on the part of the Gileadites. See that? Got a problem. Problem? Ammonites. What do we need? A leader. Where's the spiritual sensitivity? Where's the, I'm getting on my knees right now because we just have a foreign army invade and we need Yahweh. We need God's help right now. Absent from the story. Certainly a, a question we have to ask ourselves when you find yourselves in that jam, when you find yourselves invaded, right, by that foreign army in your life and it is bad, it is, things are going bad, what's your first inclination? Is your first inclination to look for someone to come and fix it? Is your first inclination to drop to your knees and ask the one who spoke the universe into existence for help? No appeal to God in the midst of this crisis in leadership. No reference to Yahweh raising up the next deliverer. Bottom line... While this might not seem like a huge deal, there's a, a significant contrast with their approach, which is purely secular and really more Canaanite than Israelite. But then again, that shouldn't surprise us because then again, that's the problem which led them to this situation in the first place. That's the story of the judges. They didn't obey God. They didn't drive out the nations around them. And as a result, the nations around them end up recruiting them, end up pulling them away from God. Contrast their search or their approach to find a deliverer. No doubt attracting the, the wrong type, the wrong sort. Contrast that with, I don't know, Jesus, the servant leader, the servant leader that we see Jesus model for us, though he's fully God, takes on the form of man, humbling himself, serving others, though they could never pay him back or compensate him and dying sacrificially. Oh, that we would serve and lead like that. Oh, that we would be like Christ. Oh, that we would look to Christ first before we look to someone else to fix our problems. That's the right answer. That's the right answer, folks. And sometimes when we see, we see that as the right answer, sometimes that's also requires tough love where God has to just tell the people no look look to those other gods go ask those other gods for help but they can't help us yeah that's the point I think you need to realize that right now you're coming to me right you're coming to me people come to me sometimes people come to you and they look for you to fix their problems and ultimately only God can fix their problems but there's also this heart issue yes it's wonderful that they confess their sins 
But they, they weren't willing until God told them no to actually put away their sins, like put away the idols and wholeheartedly serve and be devoted to God. And that's what God is after. That's what he wants. That's what he wants, folks. That's what he's looking for from all of us. And so as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. I want to pray right now that the Lord would help us. Help us in those moments where we struggle. Where we struggle, where it's hard because the, the things we talk about, they're great, but they're also really hard. They're hard. And we need his help. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to look first to you before we look to anyone else. In those moments when the, the Ammonites come and they invade and our back is against the wall, I pray in those moments we would look first and foremost to you. Lord, I pray that you would protect us, God, from unbelief, Lord, as we hold on to your hand, as we try to follow you as best as we can, that you would protect us from unbelief, protect us from those moments when we stop believing that you are totally satisfying, totally beautiful, totally enough. Protect us from reaching out and wanting to grab onto other idols in our life to meet the needs that only you can meet. Lord, and I also pray that you'd help us, that you'd help us including when we're trying to minister to other people. God, give us wisdom and discernment in those moments. Sometimes, Lord, I know we, we need to have the sort of response you did here. Yeah, sometimes we have to have those really hard conversations. And I hate having them, and I know many of us hate having them too. And I pray for wisdom, I pray for discernment in those moments that you would guide us. And that when we minister to people, we would always point them back toward you. Because you are enough. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.